For AZPM, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, find out why some teachers are okay with students using AI in the classroom, while others are not. I'll talk with director John DeGraff about making the documentary film Stuart Udall, The Politics of Beauty, and the free screening that's happening Sunday in Tucson. And in a new edition of Children of the Holocaust, listen to the story of a man who, as a child in France, survived the Holocaust by hiding in plain sight. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The use of artificial intelligence software in the classroom, like the one that's known as ChatGPT, is controversial. Some teachers are embracing the technology, while others are shunning it. Summer Horn reports. How does this new type of AI software work? To answer that question, we turn to Arizona State University computer science professor Subaral Kamambati, who explained the difference between discriminative AI and what's called generative AI. One type of software um, is essentially trying to give a label to something it is presented. So, for example, if you give it a dog picture, it'll say dog. If you give it a cat picture, it says cat. These are called the basically discriminative or classification systems. They have been around for quite a while. And in fact, between 2013 and until about two years back, um, they become very powerful. That's why you have your cell phones. You know, you can just take a picture of a bird. It'll tell you what the bird is. And if you take a picture of a, um, you know, a plant, a leaf, it'll tell you what plant it is. He says the main difference between that and generative AI lies in the software's ability to not just categorize or identify, but to actually create. While those systems could tell you when given a cat, whether it is a cat or not, they didn't know how to generate these things. They didn't know how to generate the cat picture. They didn't know how to generate voice. So most of us know how to say this is a good song, this is a bad song. Very few of us know how to sing well. And it's this ability to create that worries some teachers. With students using generative AI software like ChatGPT to help them complete school assignments, some teachers are notably concerned. At the moment, the choice of whether to ban or allow the use of AI largely depends on the teacher. Alex O'Mara, an English journalism and creative writing instructor at Cochise College, says that since ChatGPT was launched in November of last year, he's not allowed his students to use AI to complete their assignments. ChatGPT and AI takes the place of actually writing. And writing in an academic setting is foundational to basically helping students learn how to think, basically learn how to think and then express those thoughts clearly. You know, knowing how to write clearly is an incredibly valuable skill. AI uses other printed, previously printed material to create content. It's plagiarism because they're using previously used words that other people have created for students to create their own work. I want students to tell me what they're thinking in writing. If that process is not engaged, the entire educational process collapses. This opinion is not uncommon. Kristen Juarez, a psychology instructor at Cochise College and the head of the college's social and behavioral sciences department, says that most teachers across different specialties have told her they do not want students using AI on their assignments. The general consensus from the people that I've talked to, from English to math to anthropology 
to psychology, to biology, is the vast majority of them would prefer to avoid it altogether. And they are writing really strict policies about AI use in their classrooms to try and prevent students from using it. I kind of look at it as that's like asking them not to use a calculator for the rest of their lives. Juarez says that she's taken a different approach, embracing the technology in her classroom. It's not thinking. And we need to get them to understand that it's not thinking and to identify where it's missed some of those critical thinking aspects and the gaps and how they have to be able to make that leap to the application of it in their world, in their lives. Juarez has special requirements about students' use of ChatGPT. One, they have to cite it. I'm also requiring that they vet it. And that's the hard part for, I think, a lot of them is they're like, wait a minute, I have to do what? And I want them to go double check that it's right because it lies. I mean, it wholly fabricates sources altogether, which is absolutely mind boggling to me. And I want them to see that. At the heart of the debate on the use of AI are questions about accountability. Stephen Wu is a shareholder at the Silicon Valley Law Group in San Jose. When we spoke with Wu in September, he said, There is no general artificial intelligence law at the federal or state level. We, we don't have that yet. It's too new. The Europeans, the European Union is working on something called the Artificial Intelligence Act, which attempts to do that, but we don't have something equivalent of that. Since we spoke with Wu, President Joe Biden issued an executive order dealing with AI. The order has the force of law, but can also be rescinded by President Biden or any other president at any time. Wu says that action from Congress on regulating AI moving forward is not likely to happen anytime soon. I think we're having difficulty at the congressional level in the House and the Senate of passing legislation that is very difficult and complex. It may be that we have to wait until the next Congress before we can see some significant movement on something like that. While there are concerns about AI use, ASU computer science professor Subarao Komampati says that generative AI is good at creating works that mimic ones published by humans, but its one weakness is it struggles to generate content that is factually based. The generative AI is extremely bad at factual knowledge. So Google, basically, if you ask it something, it will show the site on which the answer is, whereas ChatGPT essentially is completing. So if there is a question saying, I have these symptoms, you know, do I have a COVID? Um, what would be the most likely next word, next word, next word, next word after that? That's all it is doing. And it's not checking whether or not it is actually factual. But does generative AI, like ChatGPT, have a place in the classroom moving forward? The answer is mixed. Cochise College writing instructor Alex O'Mara says he doesn't think so. You know, you're substituting the pure, unadulterated thinking of an individual with machine thinking based on a collective. The Sierra Vista Unified School District's Assistant Superintendent of Curriculum and Instruction, Terry Romo, says that for the next generation, they need to know how to use AI as a tool, just like any other technology. They already are using it. They already know about it. They're playing with it. They're fascinated by it as well. So just like with any new tool, we just have to, we have to go through the process and learn how to utilize it for good. Much like the onset of the internet, generative AI isn't going away. So how to regulate its use becomes the central issue going forward. In Sierra Vista, I'm Samar Ham, AZPM News.
It is accurate to say that Arizona native Stuart Udall left behind a proud legacy of conservation and environmental justice. Udall served as the Secretary of the Interior from 1961 to 1969 during the Kennedy and Johnson administrations. A documentary called Stuart Udall, The Politics of Beauty, examines this time of change in America and the full life story of a man who strove to bring people together in the name of preserving our natural resources. A veteran of more than 45 films, documentarian John DeGraff tells the story through archival media and many interviews with the family, friends, and colleagues of Stuart Udall. I met Stuart Udall in 1988 when I interviewed him for a film that I did for PBS about the life of David Brower, the famous environmentalist. And Stuart and David had had many encounters together, including a conflict over the proposed Grand Canyon dams, which initially Stuart supported and Brower opposed. Uh, I found in interviewing Stuart that he was an incredibly humble gentleman, and he admitted that he had been wrong about his support for the Grand Canyon dams, and that in fact, Brower had showed him he was wrong and changed his mind, and for that, Stuart said he was in Brower's debt. That was something that sort of surprised me because you don't hear that kind of thing from political figures very often. And then in uh, 2020, I saw a story that if Stuart Udall was still alive, he would be 100 years old. Thought about him again and thought, I wonder if anybody's done a film about his life. Say a few words about the progressiveness of Stuart Udall. Uh, he was really, as someone in the film says, he was thinking far down the line compared to many of his colleagues. Yeah, that was his son, Tom, who was a U.S. senator from New Mexico and is now the ambassador to New Zealand. Stuart was a progressive. He had very forward-thinking ideas about the environment. He was the first political figure uh, in the United States to warn about global warming. There were scientists who had mentioned it before, but politicians wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole until Stuart Udall did, and that was in the mid-1960s. Uh, he was kind of ahead of the curve on many, many things. He warned about the impact of the automobile, and he warned about the fact that we were overbuilding and overdeveloping, and especially dams and things like that. Ideas that have taken shape much more since his time. Uh, Stewart was also, though, in addition to being a progressive and a Democrat, as he was, he was very able to work across the aisle with Republicans and counted many Republicans as his closest friends, including Barry Goldwater, who was very different from him politically. So uh, Stewart worked with people across the aisle. He was a guy who got along with people. And he was particularly late in his life chagrined by the fact that our politics had become so uh, tribal and so divided and so polarized. I think nothing saddened a steward in his final years more than that division in our country. What are some qualities of his upbringing that you think contributed to his leadership abilities and his ability to see uh, what others were not choosing to see at that time? Well, I think Stewart had that fundamental humility. Uh, he wasn't all about himself. He had a sense of, of public service. And actually, that came from his uh, Mormon family background. Um, he was trained to be that the public service was what you did. Now, Udall left the Mormon church, and particularly at the end, he left it in a, in a, a scathing letter criticizing the church for its then refusal to admit blacks in its priesthood. But he maintained that he kept his cultural values. And his father, who ended up being the chief justice of the Arizona Supreme Court, 
had taught his kids saying, you know, we Mormons are way out here in St. John's, Arizona, kind of in the middle of nowhere in the desert, because we were kicked out of other places, the good farmland of Illinois and Missouri. And we had to go west because people didn't want us anywhere else. And so we have a duty to actually stand up for other people who are discriminated against. And that stuck with Stuart. And he and his brother, Mo, became, uh, as soon as they got out of the army at the end of World War II, they joined the Tucson NAACP. And then they were both basketball stars at the University of Arizona. And at that time, the University of Arizona was quite segregated. The blacks could not eat in the cafeterias. There were other places on campus where they could not go. And the Utah said, this is just not acceptable. And so they took a black friend to the cafeteria to break the rules. And the university actually changed its, its policy. So they had this commitment for a long time and also a great commitment to self-determination and the rights of Native Americans who um, lived in the area where they grew up. He did initially vote for the notorious Central Arizona Project, but he changed his mind about that later on. Yeah, he did vote initially for the Central Arizona Project. He voted for the Glen Canyon Dam. Uh, He later came to regret that deeply. I think he felt that his biggest mistake was his vote for the Glen Canyon Dam. But in those days, if you were an Arizona politician, you really had to vote for those projects because they were going to bring the water that made it possible to build cities like Tucson and Phoenix. Uh, And and, uh, so Stewart, many people thought when he was Secretary of the Interior that when he was done, he might be the next either U.S. Senator or Governor of Arizona. He was that popular political figure. But he was warned that if he took a stand against the proposed Grand Canyon dams to provide electricity to pump water to the Arizona desert, that he would be done as an Arizona politician. And so he had to face a a very difficult choice. And he took his family down the Grand Canyon uh, on a raft trip and uh, concluded from that that the river had told him that there should be no dams in the Grand Canyon. And so he stopped those dams. And as a result, he probably could not have gotten elected dog catcher in Arizona after that time. But it was just a a decision he had to make. I think your film does a really good job of demonstrating some of the no-win situations that Stuart Udall had to um, navigate there in the late 1960s. How would you describe Stuart Udall's relationship with then-President Lyndon Johnson? Well, I think it was generally a good relationship. I think uh, Lyndon Johnson responded, and especially his wife, Lady Bird, responded very, very positively to Udall's call for protecting natural beauty, natural resources, clean air, clean water, all of those kind of things. Uh, Johnson had grown up on a ranch uh, close to nature. His uh, wife, Lady Bird, was very much a nature lover, and Stewart persuaded her to start her beautification campaign, which was considered one of the highlights of the Johnson administration. So I think in those issues, uh, and on civil rights, of course, uh, Johnson and, and Stewart went along marvelously. Uh, on October the 2nd, 1968, Lyndon Johnson signed four bills that were really Stuart Udall's great priorities at the time. And these were the Redwoods and North Cascades National Parks, and then the uh, National Scenic Trails Act, which created the Appalachian Trail, Civic Crest Trail, uh, the Continental Divide Trail, things like that, and and many more since that time. And then the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act, which allowed uh, citizens to protect 
wild rivers from dams and other development. And uh, we now have over 250 rivers in this country that are uh, protected by that. What was the experience of making the politics of beauty like for you as a person and as a filmmaker? Speaking of 250 rivers, I think you talked to about 250 people named Udall. <laughs> it was a wonderful experience to meet all of these people, uh, uh, both the Native Americans, uh, uh, the, the wonderful Navajo artist Shanto Begay, whose work is just remarkable to me, and, and some of which I used in the film. Robert Stanton, who was the first African-American ranger appointed by Udall in 1962 when the Park Service was still segregated and later became the first African-American director of the National Park Service. Wonderful guy actually cries when he talks about Stuart Udall. I've seen this happen on more than one uh, occasion. Uh, I met so many great people in the course of, of making this film. And plus, I had the wonderful opportunity of touring your part of the world, the American Southwest, and seeing the beautiful places there that Stuart wanted to protect. So it's one of the most fun films, I think, that I have ever, have ever worked on in my 46-year career. Join AZPM for a free screening of filmmaker John DeGraff's documentary, Stuart Udall, The Politics of Beauty, on Sunday, November 12th, from 6 to 8 p.m. It will be at the U of A's Environment and Natural Resources 2 building, which is located on campus at 1064 East Lowell Street. Director John DeGraff will take questions from the audience and be part of a panel discussion. Admission is free, but you must register first at azpm.org. Also, later this month, you will have some opportunities to watch The Politics of Beauty on PBS 6, beginning on November 28th at 8 p.m. You can find additional airtimes on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. From 1941 to 1945, Germany's Nazi regime murdered two-thirds of Europe's Jewish population. Of the six million Jews who were victims of this genocide known as the Holocaust, an estimated 1.5 million were children. Against all odds, some children managed to survive. Children of the Holocaust is ACPM's Living History Project. Project producer Laura Markowitz interviewed 20 child survivors of the Holocaust who now live in southern Arizona. This is an excerpt from the story of Baruch Burstein. In May of 1940, the German army invaded Holland and then turned toward Belgium. Baruch Burstein was living in Antwerp with his parents. He was three years old. When my parents understood the danger of staying in Belgium, they took the baggages and left for France. Their plan was to escape to Switzerland, but the Nazis invaded France in June, and Baruch, his parents, and his grandmother got stuck in the German-occupied territory. In a town called Lyon, my mother was wise enough to keep her maiden name. Instead of Burstein, it was Walton's, which is not associated with the Jewish name. So she kept a maiden name, and I think this is what saved our lives also. She registered them as Protestants, and they passed as Gentiles. Baruch's father found work as an engineer. 
and eventually Baruch started school. My mother explicitly said, don't even mention Jewish things at all. Forget it. Don't talk about Jewish people. Don't say you like them or you hate them. Just ignore the subject at all. Don't, don't do that. You go to school and go back to home. And uh, I had, didn't have French friends as a kid. His grandmother didn't easily pass as a Gentile because she only spoke Yiddish. She was originally from Poland. And the, the biggest problem was my grandma because she, she refused to abandon any Jewish uh, behavior. And Friday, she wanted to light a candle. You could not convince her that it's dangerous, don't do that. No, well, make it underneath the table, but I want a candle. She was fanatic, that's all I can say. One reason it was easier for Baruch to pass as a Gentile was his blue eyes. One day, going to school, a German officer stopped me. This was in the wintertime. And I remember it was very cold and my hands were frozen. He started to talk to me in French. He didn't know that I'm Jewish, of course. And he told me, I remember this explicitly, he told me, you know, I have a son your age. And then he looked at my hands and saw my hands were cold. He gave me a cream to, to uh, put on my hands to prevent them from freezing. So some of them, if they didn't suspect you that you're Jewish, would be human. But the moment that you're Jewish, that's it. You're done. In 1943, Baruch's sister was born. That same year, Baruch's father, Joseph, was captured by the Nazis. One of his co-workers turned him in. And he was uh, deported to Auschwitz. Then somebody from the place that he was walking told us that the German came in and, and took him. And that's how we found out. And uh, well, I, I was very worried about him because we didn't know what's going on. We, we heard that what's, uh, what the Germans are doing to the Jew Jewish people. And we didn't know if he's going to survive it or not. We actually played the, the act of, well, he was Jewish, what can you do? I mean, towards the external world because we were not supposed to be Jewish. His mother found a job in Lyon, but life there was increasingly dangerous for the family because every time the Allies bombed the city, they had to run into the nearby bomb shelter. And we shared it with Germans, soldiers, yeah. How did your grandmother deal with that? She was quiet. She, she, she kept them out shut. His mother decided to try again to take the family to Switzerland. We went uh, halfway, and then the whole thing fell apart. I don't remember why, but it didn't work out. So we got stuck in a little town, Saint-Michel-de-Maurienne, it's called. And uh, this town was actually still then primarily controlled by the French underground, Marquis called. Uh, we stayed there until the end of the war. France was liberated in 1944. Baruch was eight years old. You saw on the streets there was an amazing joy. Uh, we were happy, but 
I don't think as a child I, I really jubilated so much at all. The, the war has ended, time was free. Not to the same extent as the non-Jewish people were, those that hated the Germans, because we lost a lot of family, a lot of people. Uh, my father wasn't there. But then they received word that his father was alive. My father came out of Auschwitz a cripple. I mean, they, they broke his legs. I saw a person that was tortured. Maybe uh, I could see physically. I mean, the guy was limping. I mean, you could see it uh, on every move. Uh, but I saw also a mental torture. I mean, he was a close person. He didn't like to. He didn't like to show feelings too much. He didn't like to talk too much about himself. You know, not many people came out of uh, of concentration camps. I think that it had effect on his personality, because the time he spent over there, I think that he got a lesson to to keep stuff for himself, not to open himself with his feelings to other people. He just said that what he saw over there, nobody should see in his life. And to tell you the truth, we didn't push him either, because we knew how sensitive this is for him. And I wasn't sure I want to hear that. I wasn't sure I want to hear that. That's terrible. His family moved back to Antwerp and lived there for two years before emigrating to Israel. Baruch became an aviation engineer and then an executive for the Israeli national airline El Al. He had the opportunity to travel to Poland, and he went to visit Auschwitz. I still get emotional when I think about it. It's People say Auschwitz, a camp, they have no idea how big this was. This was not a camp, this was a, a town. Huge, huge, huge town. And uh, the Polish government made some of the structures a museum. And you can see all those remains of uh, people's hair and shoes and glasses and, and the shoes of children, how many children. You have to see this to understand the magnitude of the criminal activities of the Germans. He understands that he easily could have ended up there. I never looked at myself as a survivor of a Holocaust. I, I took it as a, as part of my life, but I never made this as a label. I was considering my mother as the person that actually saved our lives with her behavior, with her know-how, with her street wiseness. She was very modest. She would never admit that we are alive because of her. And this is the truth, we are alive because of her. Baruch says he will always be grateful to her. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Laura Markowitz. The full video interview with Baruch Burstein and many others is now available on the Children of the Holocaust page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show is a production of AZPM. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The assistant producer is Leah Britton. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.